Please turn with me in your Bible first to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. So last Sunday, for those of you who were here or who were able to see it online, uh, we talked about Paul. You remember Paul was talking about his life before he knew Jesus? And he had a whole list of gains. Do you remember this? His gains? His gains were his past religious achievements in Judaism, and he had he had some pretty good gains in that column. He was advancing among all his contemporaries. He was zealous for the ways of what he thought were the ways of the Lord, and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And when he met the Lord Jesus, what happened? He had a change in his values. Can we, the word value sometimes can take kind of a cheap form, but I, I mean really, what you value at the core of your being must change fundamentally when you and I meet Jesus in a saving way. And Jesus speaks in a very similar kind of way here. It's a short parable. I love this parable. Look with me, Matthew 13, 44, a one-verse parable. Our Lord says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Let me read that one more time. It's so short. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, I have to do a little guesswork here. We're not 100% sure some of the details. There's not a lot of details. But it could be, maybe, Jesus is thinking something like this. It was not uncommon for people to own large tracts of land at the time in the area. And you would have farmers that you would hire to work parts of your land because you couldn't do all of it yourself. Perhaps that's what's going on here. And one of these people perhaps working for the person who owns the land is maybe, you know, digging away, maybe plowing the land. And as they're plowing, perhaps, or digging or something like that, the plow hits something solid. And they say, that's not normal. And they go look down in the dirt and they find buried treasure. Now, listen, since you were a kid, you all wish this would happen, don't you? You're out doing yard work. Maybe today is the day I find the hidden treasure under the bushes and it doesn't it doesn't happen, does it? I'm sorry about that. But this is a once in a lifetime, maybe once in about a thousand lifetimes uh, discovery because, you know, you didn't have the banking system that we have today. Uh, if someone was sick or ill and they wanted to hide their treasure, they would literally have to bury it in the ground. And if the person passed away before they were able to get to it and no one knew, it's just there for whoever finds it. So this person's digging and they strike something solid and they pull the dirt away. And this person goes, what is this box? What is this? And the person tears it open and sees unimaginable treasure. It's like your entire lifetime savings account. Here it is. For some of you, you're like, it wouldn't be much. Be some change in a box. You go, okay, I'll leave that in the ground. Th this person sees treasure and he knows, apparently there was a rule amongst these people that if, if, if you were to remove it out of the ground, if you were to pick it up out of the ground and carry it to the owner, it would be his. He would have rights over it. And so instead, this person discovers it and goes, I'm not going to touch it at all. I'm just going to leave it where it is. I'm going to bury it again, cover it back up with dirt. Hope nobody is out digging in this field tomorrow. I'm going to make sure it's all, looks like no one's been here. Hide it back where it was. And literally, from his joy, this man is not apparently super wealthy. From joy, he goes back to maybe his wife and kids and says, hey, uh, we got to sell the house. 
Uh, we moving somewhere? I don't have a place. We got we to sell our house today, right now. Uh, whatever animals they have, we're selling those. Uh, whatever we've got, you, you got those, the family heirloom? We're selling it today. We're, we're going to get every penny we can get. We're going to sell everything I have. I'm going to get as much money as I possibly can. If I have to borrow whatever I got to do, I'm going to get enough money and I'm going to go back to the landowner. I'm going to buy the whole field without him knowing about the little treasure discovery. I'm going to buy the whole field. And then he does, and from joy, he sells everything, takes all that money, buys the entire field. The owner's like, I did not see this coming. You want to buy the whole field? Buys the whole field. The owner leaves. This is the new owner. He goes out, digs it back up. There's the treasure still there. And now he has far more than he ever would have had otherwise. Now, do you see how that fits in with the Paul text from last Sunday? Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. So let's turn back here to Philippians chapter 3. As you're turning there, I can't help but also mention Jesus also says these, and using some of Paul's same words. So turn back to Philippians 3. I'll read this from Matthew 16. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it, gained it. Then he says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Do you see again? If you gain the whole world and you lose your soul to Jesus, you have infinite loss. And if you lose everything in this life for the sake of gaining Jesus, you gain everything. If you sell all that you have and buy the field where Jesus is buried in the treasure, it is far worth any loss we might incur in the path of that endeavor. So back to Philippians 3. Let me reread last part of last week. Look at verses 7 through 9. Just tremendous verses. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Pause there. Did Paul lose some things when he became a follower of Jesus? Did he have status? He had more status than probably we're going to experience in our lifetime. Did he have probably some wealth in, incorporated in that? Yes. He had lived his whole life to accumulate this great reputation, and he had it. And he gave all of it up, counting it all as loss because of how valuable and how worthy Jesus was. And Paul would say, by comparison, the rest was garbage, refuse, rubbish compared to gaining Christ. So just start, start off with this point of application here. Whether you're a believer or not today, is there something right now in your life that is holding you back in some way from your relationship with Jesus. So just think for a second. It might be an obvious sin. There might be a sinful habit 
a sinful temptation that you're giving into repeatedly that is holding you back from knowing more of Jesus? For you, it might be a good thing that's keeping you back. It might be work, right? It might be something really good. It might be something that you're investing in that is wonderfully good and a gift from God, but is it, are there areas in which it is holding you back and blurring Jesus in your vision? So I want you to have that in your mind as we work through today's passage here. Okay, now, picking up at verse 9, I'm going to read all the way to 16. Paul says, that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share fellowship in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Well, in this passage today, Paul is going to be using a running or a racing metaphor a foot race metaphor that runs through this passage. Look with me. Okay, I'm, I'm reading the text a lot, but look with me one more time as I read verse 12 one t- another time. Paul does not want to be misunderstood. He says, not that I have already obtained or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I, I hope this text is encouraging to you because... I don't think we're going to find a greater Christian than the person writing this passage, right? The Apostle Paul, hard to compete with. If you're, if you're going to kind of measure where you're at spiritually, where I'm at with the Apostle Paul, it's like, well, yeah, he, he's, he's definitely going to win that competition. And the Apostle Paul, who was seemingly the greatest Christian who had, who's ever lived, he says, I want this to be clear. With all this talk about gaining Christ and being found in Christ, I want you to know something. I have not yet reached complete perfection in this life. I haven't gotten there. I have not reached perfection. And there's a little bit of a debate about what exactly he's referring to. I will spare you the debate, although I took a chunk of my weekend, this debate. But I will say that uh, there's a combination of possibilities. Some people think what he has not yet obtained is the resurrection, because he just mentioned it in verse 11. The resurrection could be what he has not already obtained. Certainly that's true. Secondly, it could be moral perfection. He's not yet perfect, which also is obviously true. Number three, it could be that he does not yet know Christ fully. He's talking about knowing Christ. He hasn't fully arrived. And uh, I I don't mean to be playing a cop-out game here, but I do think we can sort of play in all of the above on this, okay? I think that all of them are true. He has not yet been resurrected. Is he morally perfect? No, I am not perfect. Does he fully know Christ? 
No, he is an infinite being. How can an infinite being be fully known ever by finite creatures like you and I? Of course not. So Paul is saying, listen, I have not fully arrived. I'm not resurrected. I still have sin in my life. I'm not all the way there, but I am also not going to slow down. I'm going to press on. Now, I, I seriously doubt this is going to be an issue for probably anyone in the room right now or listening online. Uh, but there has been, there have been times, I'm going to pick on a person who's, I think, a great saint in many ways, but uh, John and Charles Wesley, uh, who in many ways were used by the Lord in, uh, for great things during the, the Great Awakening in the 1740s, and they've you know, written amazing hymns. But they, they kind of started a movement. They actually based it, ironically, on this very passage, uh, the, the Wesley brothers, a kind, of, a kind of holiness perfectionism movement in the 1740s. And they believed that you could attain a kind of real sinlessness in this life. Now, they, they qualify it. They say, okay, you're not really sinless entirely, and there's still issues on the inside. And I'm like, well, then it's not sinlessness. <laughs> but but they, they say you can, you can attain a kind of perfectionism in this life where you can go periods without really sinning. To which I would again say, I would like to meet the person who can do that. I, I want to better understand. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Anyone who thinks that they're there on that, that they've arrived, I don't think they've thought deeply about those commands for very long. I mean, just let's be honest. If, if I'm loving God with 20% of my mind, that's pretty good, I think. And 20% of my heart, I'm getting somewhere. 100% not till heaven, I don't think, is that going to be happening. But, but do be aware that there have been times in Christian history where there have been holiness movements that have a good motivation. I mean, who doesn't want us to be holy? Of course, absolutely, we should strive for holiness. But the New Testament will repeatedly warn us, even Paul, 30 years into his walk with Jesus, right? This is 30 years in. I'm not perfect. I'm not there. You can read 1 John 1, if anyone says, I have no sin, He's a liar. Just, John, what do you think about? Oh, okay, you just told us. Uh, if anyone says, I have no sin, that person is lying to you. They're, they're deceived in some way. So the New Testament is clear. James, I mean, he's the, you know, the half-brother of Jesus. If that doesn't give you some bonus points, okay, you have some credibility. I'm, who's your brother? The Messiah. Oh, okay, okay, let's talk to you. So J James shows up, and if you remember James chapter 3, not my favorite verse of the Bible. Not many of you should become teachers, for teachers will be judged more strictly. Not my favorite verse, but then it says, for we, I'm so thankful he said not you guys, but he said we, for we all stumble in many ways. That's the brother of Jesus saying, I still stumble. I still sin. I hate my sin, but I still make mistakes. Then he says, if anyone can perfectly control his tongue, he's a perfect man. And, and I don't think that's where anyone has gotten to in this life. So Paul is realistic and says, we're not in perfection here. But what I love about this is Paul is going to bring in a racing metaphor. You say, we, we've heard a lot of these racing metaphors. Paul likes them. Why is it brilliant that Paul brings in a foot race metaphor? Well, think about this. If you are racing, if you're in the middle of a race, have you reached the finish line yet? No, you haven't arrived. The goal is still in front of you and you are sweating and you're breathing really hard and you're going as hard as you can to get there. But the whole point of a race is while you're racing, you're not yet there. But are we going to get there? By God's grace, we're, those who know the Lord will not fail. He will complete the good work. 
that he began in us. He will get us to that finish line. But Paul also says, just because we're not yet, we haven't yet arrived, doesn't mean we stop racing and sit down on the sideline and get the, get, you know, get the lemonade and just sort of chill and just let the race go. No, it, you do neither of these things. You don't stop racing uh, because you haven't gotten there yet. You keep racing because you're heading towards that resurrection and that perfection that comes in front of us. Now, before we go more into the race metaphor, look at the end of verse 12. Paul says, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love that. I press on to seize it, to grasp hold of it, to make it my own because Jesus has seized, grasped hold of. He's made me his own. This is kind of Paul's version of we love because he first loved us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work within you to will and to work for his good purpose. You need to reach out and seize Jesus. You need to grab hold of him. You need to take hold of him. Why? Because he's already taken hold of you. Do you see how this works? What starts, our effort or grace? Which comes first? Grace comes first and Jesus grabs a hold of you and I. And let's just be honest here. Um, left to ourselves... Had Jesus not taken hold of you, where would you be today? It is a healthy thing to think about. I think Spurgeon said, those today, famous pastors who are valiant for truth, if the Lord had not taken hold of them, they would be as valiant for error right now if the Lord had not intervened. Those who are passionate for the Lord and for holiness would be passionate for their sin had the Lord not stepped in and intervene. Where would you be today had the Lord left you to your own devices and let you continue down the path you were heading? Uh, it, it is a frightening thought, and if anyone knew this thought, it's the man writing. I held the coats for the people stoning Stephen. I know what it's like to be going my own way with full self-confidence. Paul held the coats as they killed Christ, a, a Christian. And now he's passionate for Christ. So grace takes the initiative. Jesus grabs us, and then we make it our life's effort to take hold of him. So let me ask you this. Is there a passionate desire in your life to make Jesus your own? To know him more? To dive deeper into his word, into prayer? To share him with others, believers, or unbelievers? Is there a driving passion in your heart to know Jesus better and to take hold of him? Because that is evidence that he's taken hold of you. If there's no desire in me to really know the Lord, if there's no desire to grasp hold of him, that's a sign he has not yet taken hold of me. Do you see? So one of the, the great evidences, the primary evidence that we know the Lord is not even that we're in church right now. And that's a good thing, but that doesn't prove that I know the Lord. Is there a desire in your heart to seize, grasp, take hold of the Lord Jesus in your life? And if there is, fan that into flame. Verse 13. Paul, again, is being realistic. Brothers, 
I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do. I just tell you, in the Greek, there is no I do. It's just but one thing. Only one thing. What is that? And then he tells you like three things. I, I love this about Paul. One thing I do, then he lists like three or four things. You're like, Paul, uh, that you said forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead, pressing on toward the prize of the upward call. How is that one thing? Well, I, I think it's actually not that complicated if you look at it. One thing I do, and I think the one thing is verse 14. I press on. That's the one thing. And what's he pressing on for? Toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the one goal. We'll come back to that. But there are two ways we do it. Do you see? There's one thing I do, which is pressing on towards the goal. And then how, so the, the what is pressing on toward the goal. That's the one thing, the what, pressing on. But the how is two things. I don't think I explained that well. Did I lose everybody right there? <laughs> the one thing is pressing on, but then there's two hows. How do you press on? Two things, middle of verse 13. But one thing I do. Number one, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press forward, I press on toward the goal. Now, I don't know if this slide will work. I, I haven't actually, well, we'll see. If the slide doesn't work, it's okay. But I want to read you a little story. There it is. Uh, th this is a colorized black and white photograph, okay? This is a colorized photograph from 1954. Some of you may already know this story. Uh, this comes from a pastor named Kent Hughes. And I'm just going to read real quick what happened. He said he was a child when this occurred, and he, he remembers paying careful attention to this particular famous race. So, 1954, August 7th, during the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada, the greatest mile run match ever took place. It was touted as the Miracle Mile because the two, two men here, Roger Bannister and John Landy, were the only two sub-four-minute milers in the world. Now, I know today, like, you're, you're, you're like an eight-year-old kid in your neighborhood who can run less than a four-minute mile. It's been broken many times. But at the time, there were only two in the world who had run a mile in under four minutes, and it's these two men right here. Uh, Bannister, who's the guy closer to us in the picture, had been the first man ever to run a sub-four-minute mile. Both runners were in peak condition at the time of the race. Bannister strategized that he would relax during the third lap, and he would save everything for his finishing drive, come back from behind. But as they began the third lap, Landy, who's the gentleman there looking the other way, Landy began running even faster. And so Bannister uh, increased his pay, excuse me, let me start over. Immediately Bannister adjusted his strategy and he began having to run faster to keep up with Landy. He quickly cut the lead in half and at the bell for the final lap, the two men were even. Landy began running even faster, and Bannister followed suit. Both men were flying. You can watch this on YouTube, by the way. I did it this morning. Uh, Bannister felt he was going to lose if Landy did not slow down. Then came the famous moment, replayed thousands of times in print and video in this famous photograph. As at the last stride before the home stretch, the crowd roared. Landy could not hear Bannister's footfall. So he looked back 
There it is, the famous moment where he turns to his left shoulder to see. He turns to look back, and a fatal lapse of concentration occurred. Bannister launched his attack and went around his right side and hit the stretch and won the Miracle Mile that day by five yards. So this, this is my, you can see it on the old black and white video. At this point, the crowd goes really loud. He can't hear, right? Landy can't hear, so he turns over his left shoulder, and then at that moment, that was the key moment, and uh, Bannister passes on the right, and then he just peels out right in front of him, and he wins the race. And Kent Hughes said, those who look away from Christ, their end goal and the goal of our race will not ultimately finish well. This is a powerful visual illustration of what Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, we've got to forget what's behind. Like when you're, in a, when you're in the middle of a race, if you're thinking about last lap, a mistake you made, or if you're thinking, oh, where's the person behind me, paranoid or panicked, and you're looking back over your shoulder, you could lose your footing. You could lose your concentration. And ultimately, in this case, you could lose the entire race. Now, when Paul says forgetting what's behind, he doesn't mean he forgot his past like he had amnesia. Did Paul just tell us about his past a few verses ago? Persecutor of the church? Paul is well aware of his past. He, he recites his conversion at different points. So what does he mean? Well, he means, I think, we cannot be sidetracked by past failure or what? Past success. I think both of them can become temptations. So perhaps there is sin in your past that you have repented of. You've confessed it. You've turned from it. You hate it. And yet it just nags at you all the time. And it's starting to sort of trip you up. It's, it's sort of keeping you back. It, it's not letting you have the freedom in Christ that you need. Paul, I think, would say, once you've repented of a sin, in, in a sense, in a holy sense, we need to forget that. Forget that. Turn from it. It's washed by the blood of Christ and keep going with your rice. Or maybe it's past success. I actually think Paul has past success more in mind than past failure. Here's what I mean. Paul's been a Christian for how long? 30 years? Has Paul had some successes at this point in his, his life? He's been to the third heaven. On your resume, that's going to be number one. Third heaven was there for a little bit. Uh, okay, yeah, I've started a, a bunch of major churches in all the, like a lot of the major cities in Rome. Okay. About six years ago, I wrote the book of Romans. Oh, really? Okay. You wrote Romans about six years ago. Okay, that's pretty good. I'll put, put that in your resume. Could Paul begin at this point in his life resting on his laurels? Could he say, okay, like I started a church in, I started a church in Philippi, Galatia. I started a church here, here, here. I've kept up with those churches. We've seen many conversions. I've been all over the Roman Empire. I've been beaten for Jesus on many occasions. I've been shipwrecked for Jesus numerous times. I've written books that are going to turn out to be books of the New Testament. Okay, I've written a lot of them. I'm going to end up being one of the most influential people who has ever lived in human history because my letters are going to shape uh, the world for millennia to come. I think I'm going to take it easy. I'm in my 60s. I'm going to take it easy. I don't need to be sitting here in a prison cell. I don't need to be chained to a Roman soldier. I just need to just take a vacation for a while. I don't need to be doing this. And Paul says, listen, I'm not resting on past success. Because guess what? Paul needs God's grace the day he writes this, no less than the day before and the year before 
and the decade before. So, maybe for you, oh, I, this would be the exception, but maybe during this whole coronavirus thing, you have thrived spiritually the whole time. I want your autograph if that is the case. Maybe you have. Maybe the last five months has been the best time of your life spiritually. That is awesome. Maybe you've been reading really solid uh, books and theology, and maybe you've done evangelism like never before. Maybe you've had opportunities to share with family members and friends. Maybe you've led someone to Christ, genuinely. Praise God. I want to tell you that there's a danger. Turn with me to the left. Hold your spot. But 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul penned this book years earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and if, if you're there, go down to the very last paragraph, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Paul will use some of the same vocabulary words here as he does in Philippians 3. Listen to the race metaphor again. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, or run in such a way, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Look down here with me at verse 12 of chapter 10. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, do you see there? Careful when you stand firm, lest you what? Fall. So there's a kind of forgetting. You can go back to Philippians. There's a kind of forgetting here. When things are going well spiritually, you're standing firm. Things look good. Don't become presumptuous. Don't say, I got this. I've succeeded for the last year, the last 10 years. I don't have to worry about temptation anymore. I don't have to worry about that. I got this. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's presumption. And the Lord, you may fall. Careful when you stand firm. The Lord will faithfully help you endure, but you've got to cling to him and not rely on your own past successes. So, again, if there's past failure, we repent of it, and then what do we do? We get back in the race. And when there's past success, which may even be more dangerous in some ways because we could rely on it as, a, as an achievement, Paul says, don't rely on past grace. You cannot run today's car off last week's tank of gas, okay? You need fresh grace from the Lord this week to fight and to deal with our flesh. Okay. Rereading here at 13 of Philippians 3. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, that upward call of God, y'all remember the word calling, right, in the, in the Bible? Now, let's be honest, we oftentimes in kind of Christianese, y'all know that language? We're very good at that in America, right? Christianese. So in Christianese, we oftentimes will use a word that the Bible doesn't normally use the word that way, right? And so we kind of get confused about what the word means. A, a very famous Christianese word is, is about calling. And usually when we talk about our calling, we talk about our vocation. Like I've called to be a missionary or I've called to be a pastor. I'm called to be a school teacher. I'm called to be a mother, a father, right? And that's not a bad use of the word. I think there's maybe one or two uses of that in the New Testament. I think maybe one. But almost every time, the words, there's three different words for calling. The vast majority of the times that they are used by Paul, it is not about what you're doing for a living. Almost without exception in Paul's letters, calling, a few different words he uses, they're all connected in Greek. The word calling is referring to God's sovereign, effective call, whereby he called you from death to life in Christ. It's, it's like Lazarus. Jesus called Lazarus, and Lazarus wasn't like, no, I'm going to stay dead. Okay, that's not an option. Jesus said, hey, Lazarus, come forth. And the call creates life. And Lazarus was coming out. Now, he, he, he came out. He walked out. But he was coming out because the Lord's call was effective. It was effectual call, as it's been called historically. And that's what Paul's referring to here. The upward call of God is that moment where he took hold of Paul. He stepped in on the Damascus road, road and Paul was called by Jesus. You are my chosen instrument. I will make you stand before kings and governors for my sake, and you will bear witness, and you will suffer many things for my name. Paul was called sovereignly by the Lord. Again, the accent is on God's grace intervening in our life and calling us toward this upward reality. I got to say one more thing about the word upward here. That word upward is used in reference to, you remember Colossians chapter 3? Fix your mind on things above, same word, upward. Fix your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And he says, therefore put to death what is earthly in you. Okay, last two verses, verses 15 and 16 of Philippians 3. These are a little bit confusing, I will grant you. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Now, I've got to stop there. Your translation may make this clearer than the ESV here. I think that it's a little complicated. So, so real quick, just hang with me here. So, you know the word like telescope, television, telecommunications, the telos word? You're like, oh boy, we're going into Greek words here. Okay, so th- that, the word telos is it's about the end goal, the final point, right? The terminating point, the end, the telos, okay? Paul is using that word here. Now, here, here's what's tricky. The word in Greek for telos, that word, teleo, tele, whatever it is, that word is, it can be translated, depending on context, it can be translated perfect, and it can be translated mature. And it can mean both depending on context, Okay. Paul says, when I was a boy, I talked like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways. And he calls that telos. He calls that perfection, maturity. Okay, why am I telling you this? Paul is using a word play here. In verse 12, he said, I am not teleoi. I'm not perfect. And then in verse 15, he goes, I am teleoi. You're like, Paul, uh, did you forget what you said one sentence ago? Uh, this is the point. And I, a lot of study Bibles and a lot of people have pointed this out. I think this is, what, this is pretty... Uh, 
pretty brilliant on the Apostle Paul. Now, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, so I give credit to the Holy Spirit for this. But they, what Paul said was, you know what a sign of real perfection is? You, you want to know what maturity looks like? Knowing that you're not perfect. Do you see what he's doing? That's brilliant. If you want to be perfect and complete, know that you are not perfect and complete. A sign of spiritual maturity is knowing you have not yet arrived. So he uses the same word twice with kind of an ironic twist the second time. True maturity is realizing you've still got a race to run. You're not yet at the finish line. I think that's what he's saying. Continue, verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, I don't know how to say this without it being, again, complicated, but the word think there is the same word used in chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, the mindset, same word. Let this mind be in you, be of one mind, be of the same mind. It's the same word. I think he's saying um, those who are mature have the mindset I'm expressing right now, that we're striving toward the prize. But if there's ways in which you are still immature and you haven't yet fully embraced the Christ-like mindset, he says, listen, the Lord will be faithful to reveal that to you. If you truly know the Lord, he's not going to leave you in a state of immaturity. He will reveal more and more to you, but don't go backwards. Stay true to what you've already attained. Now, do you see? So say that I'm in a state of not maturity. I'm a, I'm a little bit on the immature side spiritually. Paul would say, okay, cling to the Lord he will reveal more and more, and he'll let you progress, pro uh, progress more and more towards maturity, but don't go backwards. Don't slide backwards. Hold fast to what you've already attained, and then press on for more and more uh, revelation from the Lord as he reveals more and more about what Christian maturity looks like in this life. Now, per perhaps uh, I think the main point is pretty clear, but I'll, I'll say it like this. Where is your passion to know the Lord Jesus at right now? So, so what I mean is, there are lots of distractions. It is very easy to be overworked or to just be vegging too much, right? With social media and constant scrolling. Is there a passionate desire in your heart to know the Lord Jesus more? to strive to know him. Here's what I mean. If someone were to look at your life, someone who knows you, if, if you were to ask them, being honest, what am I about? What's my life about? If they immediately say college football, something is wrong, okay? <laughs> what is it that marks you as you are all about blank? What, what is it people around you would say he or she, are? they're passionate for that. Would the Lord Jesus be in the top three? from the people around you who know you? Would they say, not perfect, but they really want to know the Lord? Yeah, there's struggles, there's sin, but they really want to know the Lord. Or would they say, I don't know where they are in their walk. I mean, they say some of the right stuff sometimes, and their lifestyle doesn't seem to back up what they're saying. I don't want to judge their heart, but it looks a little questionable. What would someone say if they were honestly assessing your life? Are you about one thing? Now, listen, you've got to be about a lot of things. You've got work to do. You've got things to do, lots of things to do. Every day, we've got all kinds of stuff in our schedules. 
but underneath it all and connected to it all, is Jesus front and center in our life? Do you really enjoy, if you can find time, closing the door, being alone, and talking to the Lord? Do you enjoy spending time with Him? Or has it been a couple months since you were really doing that? And if it has been a few months, I'm not trying to heap condemnation. I'm saying, why is that? What has taken Jesus' place as the center of your time and your money and your passion right now in your life? I'm not saying do you know Bible answers. That's not the point. Do you want to know Jesus relationally? You all know there's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. I feel like this is an old illustration, but I'll just say it real quick as we, as we head toward a close. There, there are actors and athletes that all of us know by name. And we could probably tell you some athletes, I know how tall this person is. Uh, I know how many shots they've scored. I mean, you, you, we could you would rattle off information. I know where they live. I know this and that. I know that this is their wife or this is their husband or whatever. But we don't actually know them, right? <laughs> we know about them, but we don't actually know them. And, and I'll just tell you, there, there's a huge, huge temptation to say, okay, I, I took my notes. I know the information about Jesus and I can win a, a Bible competition, right? I, I can answer the question. I can make an A on the test on the Bible exam. And that's wonderful. If the Lord has given you that and, and you know those things, that's great. But do you know about Jesus or are you passionately committed to knowing Jesus more and more day in and day out? Listen, the only way that can begin if you don't know him is to have that relationship be begin by his righteousness covering your sin and your sin being placed on him on the cross. And if you don't know Jesus, you just need to turn with simple childlike trust and believe in the Lord Jesus, which you can do in this moment, and ask the Lord to help you do that. Trust in the Lord right now, and you can stand righteous in His eyes. But if you're a believer and it's been spiritually sluggish and slow recently, what is holding you back and what one change can you make in your life this week? What's one thing you could change this week to help the Lord Jesus, take a more central part of your time and of your week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word tells us so clearly that every gain we could ever have minus Jesus is infinite loss. What does it profit if we gain the world and lose our soul? And the Lord Jesus is the treasure in the field. His kingdom and all that it is for us is a treasure in a field. God, give us the desire not to begrudgingly, but like the man in the parable, from joy, go sell whatever's in the way, get the money and buy that field to have that treasure. Help us, God, to get back up on the, on the racetrack if we have fallen off and help us to exert effort to pursue the Lord Jesus and to seek to take hold of him who have first took hold of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.